Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us to give us the opportunity to sing your praise and the opportunity to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would work through Psalm 118 this morning and make us people who, in our souls, find rest in you alone. Lord, make us fully confident that you are worthy of praise because you are good and because your steadfast love does indeed endure forever. We ask that you cause us to feel these things deeply now as we look into your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Psalm 118, and we will look at this passage together. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that speaks of one of the evils under the sun. And it speaks of how sometimes in life we look in the place where there should be righteousness, and instead what we find is injustice. And, and uh, the author of Ecclesiastes says this is, this is a great evil under the sun. It's frustrating. It shouldn't be that way. And as we consider uh, Psalm 118 this morning, I just want to begin by by acknowledging that uh, there are people that shouldn't disappoint us that do. There are people that we expect better from and we don't get the good expectations that we have. But what this psalm says to us is that no matter who in this world disappoints you, you can be confident that God is going to keep his promises. You can be confident that even if you feel betrayed by those close to you, those that, that you think should love you, and instead they turn on you, you can be confident that the Lord will be faithful. The Lord is going to keep his word. That's what we have in this psalm. This psalm is remarkable, and I, I have been marveling uh, with you at this magnificent work of art that we have in, in the book of Psalms as a book and in the individual Psalms that we find. It's interesting, um, Psalm 118 was actually Martin Luther's, according to Charles Spurgeon, Psalm 118 was Martin Luther's favorite Psalm. He said, this is my particular Psalm. He loved this Psalm. And also, interestingly enough, um, these Psalms Psalms 111 through 118 were, were added to the Passover ritual in, in ancient Judaism. And scholars suggest that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, you know, it, it says in the Gospel of, of John that they sang a hymn and went out. Scholars suggest that probably the hymn that they sang was Psalm 118. And I would, I'm going to suggest to you that that was incredibly appropriate remarkably appropriate. We've been looking at this, these psalms, and we've seen how... Well, first, let me, let me draw your attention to the opening words of Psalm 118. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And people refer to this kind of thing in different ways. Uh, they might refer to it as a latch, or a sandwich, or a mirror, or a panel, or a frame. But what they're getting at is the way that the, the first words of the psalm, 
are word for word the last words of the psalm. So if you look at 118 verse 29, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And we've seen these words before. Look back at 107.1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Look at 106.1. After praise the Lord, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, what this does, the fact that that, that line is repeated in 106.1, 107.1, and 118.29, is it ties the message of these psalms together. And, and we've been, I've been talking about how at the end of 106, there's this, this cry, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. And, and, and that cry, basically, this is from an exiled people, a people that have been driven from the land, and they're saying, do what you've promised to do, gather us from the nations through the new exodus, the new act of salvation, bring us home from exile. And then in 107.2, 107, Psalm 107, verse 2, let the redeemed, those who experienced the new exodus and they've been gathered home from the, 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 uh, the exile, they've, they've experienced the return from exile, and now they're, they're being urged to praise the Lord because he has redeemed them. And then, uh, you know, we, we, we looked at 108 and 109, you have that magnificent Psalm 110 where David's Lord, the future king from David's line, is installed as this Melchizedekian high priest, and then the Psalter erupts in praise as you have these hallelujahs echoing through 111 through 118. And it's as though when we get to 118, uh, it's as though the Savior, uh, the, the new Moses, who has accomplished the new liberation, he's becoming the new Joshua. And he's led the people to the gates of the city. And look down at 118 verse 19. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. So he's brought the people to the new Jerusalem and they're about to come into the city. And this is maybe the, the hymn that Jesus sang on the night that he was betrayed into the hands of uh, the Romans to be crucified. Uh, I think the psalm is intended to look forward to that day when the future king from David's line will lead his people into the new Jerusalem. Uh, so let's look together at, at this psalm, and we'll take it bit by bit. And um, what the psalm does is, like 115, it employs a lot of repetition. And these repetitions give it almost a chant-like quality. So, for instance, look at 118 verses 1 through 4. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. What's being asserted here is that the salvation celebrated all through these psalms from 107 through 1018, all of this is an outworking of God's goodness and love for his people. So if I were to ask you the question, why would God send Jesus? Why would God save his people? Why would God build a new Jerusalem? Why would God raise the dead? For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. If I were to say, how can we trust him to do these things? How can we believe how can we know that God is going to keep and fulfill his promises? For he is good. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. These repetitions, they're like hammer blows, banging away at our hard hearts. And the psalmist, it's like he's trying to impress upon us this message that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. In verses 2 through 4, there's this progression. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say. You may remember that same progression from Psalm 115, where in verses 9 through 11, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Verse 10, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Trusting in the Lord means believing he's good and his steadfast love is going to endure to the end of the age, and he's going to fulfill his promises. In the next little section, verses 5 through 7, there's another repetition. You see it in verse 5, the Lord is on my side. And then verse 7, the Lord is on my side. So this, this psalmist is confident. First, let me observe in the first four verses, the psalmist is calling the people to praise the Lord. He's leading them in praise. And now, in verses 5 through 7, he's recounting, notice it's an individual, verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. So out of his own personal experience, he's, he's rehearsing the way that the Lord delivered him. So he says in verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. I thought briefly about trying to tally up all the places in the Psalms where you get this kind of language, distress, called on the Lord, the Lord answered me, and I quickly gave up because it's just pervasive. I mean, the list of references would be far too long, wouldn't it? This is is the language of the Psalter. This is what the psalmists everywhere are saying, and what they're doing is testifying to us, testifying and saying, do what I did. In your distress, call upon the Lord. You will find him to be faithful. He will answer you. And then at the end of verse 5, set me free. And then he says in verse 6, the Lord is on my side. So so we got an individual speaker. And down in verse 19, this individual speaker is going to say, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And then in verse 20, he's going to say, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. So you've got an individual who is going to lead all the righteous into the city in his wake. Well, i got a hunch as to who that individual is, don't you? If we were to ask, why does this individual think that the Lord is on his side? The answer from the book of Psalms is Psalm 2. It's God's declaration in Psalm 2. The nations are raging. They're, they're plotting this vain thing. And the psalmist, says, David, according to Acts 4, says the one who sits enthroned in the heavens laughs. And then he will speak to them in his fury saying, I have installed my king on Zion. It's on the basis of that promise in Psalm 2, which is really developing 2 Samuel 7, the promises to David and the future king from his line, that the psalmist is now saying, speaking as though, I think, as though he's the future king, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. The remarkable thing about a statement like this is that it's not true only of the Messiah. I mean, Jesus earned God's favor in a way that none of us ever could. Jesus could say, the Lord is on my side. Whom shall I fear? In a way that none of us have the right to say. 
But the beauty of God's mercy is that because of what Jesus did, the author of Hebrews can appropriate this. And he quotes it in Hebrews 13, verse 6. And, and he talks about how we can say, the Lord is for me, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So, so this statement in verse 5, look back, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 6, it's, it's based on his personal experience in verse 5, right? His own personal history is teaching him, God is for me, I won't be afraid, what can people do to me? It's also rooted, it's like, it's like this theological idea has these roots that go down into the soil of Scripture and the soil of good theology. And, and that soil in which these roots are firmly planted says things like this. God has made promises that He's going to keep. And there's nobody that's going to overcome the Lord. There is no one whose power is going to transcend God's power. So these roots can hold you. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Then verse 7, he says it again. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Um, uh, <clears throat> this, this line, the first line in verse 7, has been smoothed out a little bit. Uh, a, more, a more direct translation could be rendered something like this. Um, the Lord is for me in the ones who help me. And, and honestly, I think he's talking about the army. The army that is with him, the righteous people who are with him. And he's saying, the Lord is for me, and the form of God's help comes in everybody that's with me. And I think they ought to translate it that way, because then I could say to you, and I think this is a true statement, um, God ministers his love to us as a congregation through one another. I would encourage you to think something like this. God is for me in those who help me. God is for me in the form of my brothers and sisters with whom I'm in covenant at Kenwood Baptist Church. God is for me in my friends who are with me. There's great comfort in, in knowing that we can talk to one another. There's great comfort in knowing that we can talk to one another about difficult issues that are touchy, that are, that are sensitive. And if we can have these conversations... The Lord will minister His love to us through one another. So I, I, I think it's unfortunate the way the ESV renders this verse. And, I, and the Lord is for me in the ones who help me. That, that's what it says. And then he says, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. He's talking about the enemy, uh, the enemy nations who are motivated ultimately by demonic powers and the arch enemy, Satan. And he's saying they are not going to have the last word. Satan is not going to succeed in usurping the throne of Almighty God. So we got this unit in verses 1 through 4 uh, with its refrain. Then a unit in 5, five through 7 with that refrain, the Lord is on my side. And then in verses 8 and 9, there's a new refrain. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Um, in Israel's history, <clears throat> um, you, may, you may be familiar with passages in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah is saying to particularly King Ahaz, don't trust in Assyria and don't appeal to Egypt. What you need to do is trust in the Lord. And whenever I read those passages, I always think about what Ahaz's response uh, to those, 
those urgings from Isaiah in a, in a kind of worldly way would be. I can imagine King Ahaz saying something like this. Oh yeah, Ahaz, uh, Isaiah, that's going to be really practical for me to do, to trust in the Lord. The king of Assyria, Isaiah, he can give me fighting men. The king of Assyria... Isaiah, he can give me horses, he can give me weapons, and I've got enemies at the gate, and I need to fight these people off, and you're telling me to trust the Lord. That's just not practical, Isaiah. I need people to fight the enemy off the walls, and you're telling me to trust in the Lord. And the Bible is consistently saying things like, uh, horse and rider are made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And the Bible is consistently saying things like, Verses 8 and 9 here, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And you know what works out, what happens with, with Ahaz? Ahaz sells his soul to make a deal with the king of Assyria. You can read about it in 2 Kings 16. Ahaz goes and meets with the king of Assyria, and apparently what that guy said to him was, okay, Ahaz, I'll give you horses, and I'll give you weapons, and I'll give you fighting men, but this is what you need to do. You see this altar at which I worship my gods? You need to send a model of that altar back to Jerusalem. And they need to take the Lord's altar and remove it from its place. And you put my altar in its place, and then you worship my God, and then I will help you. Ahaz does it. It's Ahaz sends the instructions back to Jerusalem, tells the high priest to remove the altar of the Lord, and put in its place the altar that he had seen the king of Assyria use. And then you know what Assyria did? Destroyed most of Israel. It's like making a deal with Darth Vader, you know? You, you, you remember that movie in Star Wars? You, see, you remember that uh, Lando Calrissian? He strikes a deal with Vader. Here I am talking about Star Wars and Denny. Uh, had, to, had to leave early today. Uh, not here to hear this. Um, uh, you don't make a deal with Darth Vader. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Uh, this next little section, verses 10 through 12, I should stop. I should stop and try to apply verses 8 and 9. So I'll say this. Um, let's, let's watch our hearts and make sure that what we turn to when we have problems is not first human remedies. There may be appropriate places for human remedies. And I'm not just talking about medicine and things like that. But let's, let's cultivate the, the reaction, the instinct in our hearts that we turn first to the Lord. We take refuge in the Lord. And then the Lord may help us, verse 7, through those who help us, through people. But let's be people who call on the Lord first. Verses 10 through 12, the refrain is, they surrounded me. That's the first part. The second part, in the name of the Lord. In the third part, I cut them off. So in verses 8 and 9, so he's got this distress in verse 5. The Lord is for him, on his side, through those who help him, in verse 7. He's taking refuge, verses 8 and 9, in the Lord, rather than human remedies. And now, verses 10 through 12, it's like the Lord gives him victory in battle. So listen to this chant-like uh, refrain. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Notice how the, uh, 
The, the statement that they surrounded him gets longer from verse 10, all nations surrounded me, to the repetition of the verb in verse 11, they surrounded me, surrounded me on every side, and then this description of them in verse 12, they surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. I think what he's getting at is the way that when, when you have very small pieces of wood that you're going to burn, something like thorns, those things flame up quickly, but they don't last, do they? It's not like a log that once you get that log burning, it's going to burn for a long time. So as he describes his enemy, it's like the enemy is impressive immediately. There's this, this quick fire, but it's not going to last. Like a fire among thorns, they went out. In the name of the Lord, he says three times. In the name of the Lord. What the psalmist is saying is, I'm fighting the, ba the battles of the Lord for the Lord's reputation. Uh, this week I have been witnessing uh, back and forths between people and in, in, a, in a particular dispute. And um, I think it's fair to say that in, in this case, both sides of this dispute think that they're acting in the name of the Lord. And I think it's also fair, fair to say that that both sides in this dispute, uh, in various ways, conduct themselves uh, in ways that take them out of step with the name of the Lord. So, so as we seek to fight the Lord's battles, we want to be sure that everything that we do is in harmony with Scripture. We want to be sure that, that all of our motives are pure. We want to be sure that all of the steps that we take are, are righteous. You know, it's, it's self-defeating to pursue a righteous cause in an unrighteous way. And, and the Lord doesn't need that from us. If, if we want to fight in the name of the Lord, we want to we be sure that we're being Christ-like in the way that we pursue these things. Three times, he says, in verses 10, 11, and 12, I cut them off. And this is interesting because um, the verb used here is, is the, the same verb used to describe circumcision in the Old Testament. So, I want to be careful here what I'm, what I'm about to say. I'm not saying that, he, that, that he's definitely saying he submitted all the nations to the law of Yahweh by means of the use of that verb, but I think it is connoted. I think it's, it's sort of suggested by the use of this verb that's also used for circumcision that he has subdued the nations and he's brought them into submission to God's standards, possibly, maybe. In the name of the Lord, he defeats his enemies and, and, and the Lord reigns over them. Uh, the central section of this psalm is in verses 13 through 18. And each unit of it is going to, I, I think, these, these verses correspond to one another in a, in a, in a chiastic way, in a, in, a, in a way that verse 13 matches verse 18, verse 14 matches verse 17, and then verses 15 and 16 glow to, go together. So I'm going to read them that way. I'm going to I'm going to first take verse 13 and then put it with verse 18. He says in verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Now, I think what he's getting at is when the nation surrounded me, when I was in distress, it was a near-death circumstance. And, and the, the, the enemy almost killed him. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. And then at just the last moment when it looks like he's going to be slain, the Lord helps him and delivers him. Now look at verse 18. He says, 
The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. I think that the correspondence of these two verses to one another in the literary structure of the psalm suggests that he's looking at his circumstances, he's looking at the battle that he was in, and now he's interpreting it theologically. And he was saying, the Lord was using that difficulty to discipline me, but he didn't give me over to death. He saved me. He delivered me. I was pushed hard, and it was an enemy pushing me, but the Lord was using it to discipline me. But he delivered me. He didn't give me over to death. It, it invites us to look at the circumstances of our lives and to look at the difficulties that we find ourselves in and to recognize, yeah, there's a human enemy at work here. And there's also, there's also a heavenly father that is using these things to discipline us. And then look at verse 14. This is a great verse. This verse has a uh, just a world of, of meaning and, and, and significance. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. Let's just think about what he's saying here. The Lord is my strength. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And the Lord is my strength. It's like, it's like David could be saying, I, I'm not saying David necessarily wrote Psalm 118, but he said things like this. He said when he went out to face Goliath, the battle belongs to the Lord. My strength is not in the, the uh, quick fire muscles that the Lord built into my arm that made it so I could sling that stone and crush Goliath's head. My strength is in the Lord. My strength is not in my massive size with which I go out to fight Goliath. Actually, I'm very small. My strength is in the Lord. The Lord is my strength. And then he says, the Lord is my strength and my song. So the content of his praises, the substance of his songs is the character of God. He's, when he sings, he sings about who God is. The Lord is my strength. He delivers me. The Lord is my song. And then he says at the end of verse 14, he has become my salvation. God himself, the existence of God is what saved him. The, the very presence of God is what saved the psalmist. But the psalmist is not, he's not inventing these ideas. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can turn to Exodus chapter 15. This is right after uh, Israel has come out of Egypt at the, at the, pass, the first Passover. And in ver chapter 14, they've crossed through the Red Sea. And then Exodus 15.1 says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And in verse 2, they say, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. It is word for word what the psalmist quotes in Psalm 118 verse 14. So what the people of Israel have experienced at the exodus from Egypt, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation, is what the psalmist has experienced in this moment of distress. Uh, if, if you were paying attention earlier when Isaiah chapter 12 was read, you, you may remember that the second line of Isaiah 12 verse 2 is this same this same statement, the Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation. So what's the significance of this? Well, uh, after the exodus from Egypt, the people of Israel sing this line, the Lord is my strength 
and song, and he has become my salvation. In anticipation of the new Exodus, the psalmist and Isaiah quote this line from Exodus 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And then if, if Jesus, on the night he was betrayed with his disciples, if they sing Psalm 118 as, as uh, tradition suggests they, they might have, um, the, the, the fulfillment of the Exodus in what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross is, is coming to pass as they sing the words. And then look at verse 17 where he says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Because the Lord is his strength and song, he's confident that death is not going to have the last word. He's going to live and he's going to recount the deeds of the Lord, which means he's going to lead God's people in praise, which is kind of what's happening in this psalm. And then the middle section in verses 15 and 16, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. I think the reference to tents suggests the wilderness. So it's, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, Exodus from Egypt, deliverance at the Passover, being fulfilled. And then they're moving through the wilderness in tents on their way to the New Jerusalem. And, and on the way, these glad songs of salvation are heard in the tents of the righteous. Then there's this refrain in verses 15 and 16 about the right hand of the Lord. Uh, which the Lord say, this is also Exodus 15. Exodus 15 verse 6 talks about the Lord's right hand and how the Lord uh, saved Israel from Egypt with his mighty right hand. Verse 15 here, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. That's the center point of this psalm. So if we think about other statements about God's right hand through, through some of the psalms that we've seen recently, we, we can think, for instance, of Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then uh, uh, related to this, uh, verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Uh, the, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The Lord's arm is not too short to save. And the Lord's hand is not too weak to deliver us. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. This psalm is, is calling us to trust. And that brings us to verses 19 through 21, um, where we have this scene uh, where the point, the, the point repeated here is, are these references to the gates or the gate. And, and what appears to be happening is the individual is now leading the, the procession of people up to the gates of the city. And he gets there, and I think this is reminiscent of Psalms like Psalm 15 and um, Psalm 24. You remember Psalm 24, where uh, the psalmist says, uh, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then he asks, who is this King of glory? And the answer is, the Lord, strong and mighty. He is the King of glory. So it's like that scene from Psalms 15 and 24 is being enacted. And, and the individual speaker says, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. 
And then verse 20, this, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And apparently the request is granted because the psalmist says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now, if we ask ourselves, just according to the text of the psalm, who is this guy? Who is this guy leading the righteous as the righteous one up to the gates of the city? I think verses 22 and 23 give us the answer. But verses 22 and 23 identify, I think, the leader of the procession. And this is what they say. It's kind of cryptic. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the built... Why would, it, why would the psalmist put it this way? I think he puts it this way because this is the way it's gone all through Israel's history. Uh, you remember Joseph gets these dreams about how his brothers and his mother and father are going to bow down to him? And, and how did they respond to that? Joseph's father, are, are we really going to bow down to you? And then Joseph's brothers are like, let's kill him. And, and they sell him into slavery, but then sure enough, it comes to pass. They come down into Egypt. Jo Joseph is blessing the whole world, and they buy grain, and they're delivered by Joseph. And, and they bow down to him. And then you remember Moses. Moses, um, Acts 7 tells us, he went out after he had um, delivered a Hebrew who was being beaten by an Egyptian. The next day, he goes out and tries to settle a dispute between a couple of Hebrews, and they say to him, who made you ruler and judge over us? And Acts 7 tells us, he was thinking that they would understand that the Lord was going to deliver them through his hand. That's not what they were thinking. So they reject Moses, and he goes away, and then the Lord brings him back, and he delivers Israel at the Exodus. David. David is anointed king. He slays Goliath. And then Saul starts trying to kill him, throwing spears at him. So this is the pattern that we see through the Old Testament. The stone that the builders rejected becomes literally the chief of the corner or the cornerstone, the most important rock in the whole building. And that's exactly what's happened with Jesus. And, and uh, Jesus himself, it's remarkable... Um, the New Testament repeatedly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all present Jesus. Uh, Denny read this earlier, Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus is interacting with people in Jerusalem who are rejecting him. And he says to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is saying, I'm the guy. I'm the stone that you're rejecting, and I'm going to be the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's a great response to the plan of God. It's a great response to the way that the Lord orchestrates all these things to come together. God sovereignly sets it up so that this pattern that we see in Joseph and Moses and David gets repeated across history and then fulfilled in Jesus. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then there's a response to the salvation that God has accomplished in verse, verses 24 and 25. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's like the day of salvation has come. The king has accomplished the victory. He's brought his people on their pilgrimage through the wilderness. They've arrived at the gates of the city. It's the day to rejoice. And so the people are crying out here, verse 25, it's translated, save us, but this is where we get Hosanna, because that's what they're saying. 
And that's also quoted in the New Testament with reference to Jesus, isn't it? And it's not just the crowds crying out uh, as Jesus enters the city, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus himself, he tells those people, you're not going to see me again until you say, Hosanna, blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is appropriating this passage and saying, it's going to be fulfilled when I come again. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then in, in verse 26, here, here's what I would suggest to you we have as the scene. Uh, historically, the gates of Jerusalem were right in front of the temple. And so I would suggest that that, that eastern gate of the city is, is the gate to which the, the future king from David's line is mentally envisioned as approaching with the train of the righteous behind him. And there's a vast horde of people gathered there at the temple in this sort of uh, picture that the psalmist is, is assuming as he says these words. And this group of people now responds in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So this horde of people is gathered at the temple, wel welcoming the king into the city, blessing him from the house of the Lord. And then I would suggest that uh, next week we're going to move into Psalm 119. I don't know how yet I'm going to handle that. I don't know if I'm going to try it in one sermon or if it's going to take a series of sermons. I, I would appreciate your prayers. It's really long. Um, but I would suggest that the function of Psalm 119 is it's as though the king, having accomplished victory, comes into the new city and there he establishes the word of God as the way of life. I think that's, that's sort of the flow of thought that we get in these psalms. Verse 27, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. This is, an, this is, this is the realization of that, that prayer wish blessing of number six. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. He has made his light to shine upon us. It's like everybody's experiencing what Moses experienced when he went up on the mountain and the shining face of God caused his face to radiate. It's the realization of, of that statement in Psalm 37. Where reflecting these themes, um, the, the psalmist says, actually it's 34, sorry, Psalm 34, verse 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Believe it. Hope in it. Live on it. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. And then there's a response of worship Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And then this personal confession of faith in verse 28. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. And then the concluding words again are the opening words. Psalm 118 verse 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, Peter brings a number of texts together in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he, he first quotes Isaiah 8, um, 
the same way that Jesus had quoted it. This was our call to worship this morning. 1 Peter 2, verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Actually, this is Isaiah 28, 16. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in Jesus, the cornerstone, chosen and precious, will not be put to shame. If you're here this morning and um, you're not a believer in Jesus, this is what we're urging you to embrace. We're urging you to embrace a Savior who will make it so that you will never be put to shame. We're urging you to embrace a Savior who will make it so that when you look to Him, your face will radiate with the light of hope and the glory of God. He is the chosen and precious cornerstone. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And then Peter says this in verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. There's honor for those who believe. Do you, you know, why would the Bible say there's honor for those who believe? Because you've responded rightly. Jesus deserves your trust. It's honorable to trust him. It's dishonorable not to trust Jesus. The honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone, verse 7 of 1 Peter 2, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Do you realize that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're, you're siding with those builders who rejected that stone, but you're rejecting the most important rock in all of what God is doing. We would plead with you not to turn away from Jesus. People may disappoint you. People at this church may disappoint you. High-profile Christians may do stupid and sinful things that disappoint you. Don't use the standards of Jesus to reject Jesus. Use the standards of Jesus to say about what high-profile Christians do that's stupid and sinful and wrong. Use the standards of Jesus to say, those guys need to repent. But if you turn away from Jesus, you know what you've done? You've contradicted the standard yourself. You've turned away from the source of the standard. Don't reject Jesus because of what his sinful people do. His sinful people need him. Cling to Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then Peter quote, this is Isaiah chapter 8. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Don't let that be your lot. Trust him. He's the cornerstone. We all need him. And he is, he is willing to save anyone who comes to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Psalm 118. We praise you, Lord, that the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. We praise you that the right hand of, of the Lord, your right hand exalts. Your right hand does valiantly. Lord, we praise you that the Lord Jesus will lead us in a, a song of worship one day, celebrating the way that when the nations surrounded him, in the name of the Lord, He cut them off. He brought them into subjection to Your law. And Lord, we praise You that You are good and Your steadfast love endures forever. We pray that You'd help us, Lord, to trust You, to turn to You, to call on You in our distress, to know that it's better to trust in You than to trust in princes. Lord, we love you. We commit ourselves to you. We pray for your help and blessing on our lives. And we pray that you would use us. We pray that, that the love that we feel for you and for one another in this room 
would be magnetic and that people would be drawn to this church, that people would be drawn to you because of your goodness and your everlasting love. All this we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.